Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Brass and Unity podcast. And this episode of the Brass and Unity podcast is brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting, Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to an unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Be sure to enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast and in support of women in the developing countries. Head over to combatflipflops.com and become part of their unarmed forces today. And by Jackson Row, Vancouver Design Jackson Row clothing caters to a relaxed bohemian lifestyle. Large doses of love go into every piece featuring comfortable favorites like sweaters, dresses, play suits, and even stuff for men and children. Made up of natural tones and a flowy West Coast vibe, Jackson Row uses only the highest quality materials to ensure you stay comfortable and looking great. Be sure to use the code UNITY at jacksonrow.ca and get yours today. And by Mala Candles, inspired by everyday surroundings, nature, travel, and a minimalist aesthetic, Mala Candles are made from hand-poured soy, lead-free cotton wicks, and essential oils. Mala also plants a tree for every single candle sold, while investing in as many sustainable materials as possible. And we around here at BNU, we use these in the office, at home, and they smell incredible. Be sure to use the code UNITY and grab yours today at malathebrand.ca. And by PAX, the best loose leaf and extract vaporizers on the planet. The small, discreet size isn't much bigger than a lipstick, and I would know, combined with premium materials, app control, multiple heat settings, and much, much more, make the PAX experience the purest and simplest available. Get the iPhone of vaporizers today at PAX.com. That's P-A-X.com. And enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support our podcast. And by Heads Up Guides, Heads Up Guides is a resource providing men with information and practical tips on how to manage and prevent depression. This is a dedicated online tool devoted to helping men get the help that they need. Find someone to talk to and navigate difficult times. For more information, head over to headsupguys.org. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Brass and Unity podcast. Uh, I had one of the guests I was a little nervous about having on, um, but I was very thrilled by the end of the conversation to speak with uh, Stephen from Wounded Warriors Canada and talk to them about some of the programs and the intricacies of how a charity like that runs and really where funding goes and how much it impacts everyday veterans and what their programs offer to families. And I really do hope that if you don't take the resources that he, he has shown and offered on this uh, on this podcast, that you definitely look them up as an option for donation. Uh, they are, do great work with Canadian veterans and mental health and in our community. Um, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Brass and Unity podcast. Uh, I am here today with a great guest that I would love to learn more about and have the rest of our world learn a little more about. Um, please everyone welcome Stephen from Wounded Warriors Canada. He is the gentleman who makes the, the programs go round. So we would like to uh, welcome you to the Brass and Unity podcast. Great, thanks for having me. So would Stephen, tell us a little bit about... Uh, what Wounded Warrior Canada does uh, for, for our people. Tell us a little bit about your programs and all of that. Certainly. So we very much are a 
uh, a dual entity, if you will. We are a charity, and so we do really do not uh, rely on the generosity of Canadians. Uh, we get a lot of our donations from individual Canadians across the country. We get donations from uh, some corporations as well, but also a little bit from grants that we apply to from the government, and whether it be provincial or the federal government as well. Uh, we certainly have linkages into Veterans Affairs Canada as well as Department of National Defence, as, as well as a bunch of links with uh, individual services, whether they be fire services, police services, uh, emergency medical services, uh, all of the various uh, organizations that exist across Canada. And that really is our one arm, is the charity, where we actually get all of the funds to enable us to actually provide the health care that we do. So we are also a health care service provider. So my official title is the Health Services Coordinator for Wounded Warriors Canada, and we provide mental health services for uniformed first responders. And what that really means is that we provide mental health services group programs that are all clinically led for uh, police, fire, EMS, military, both active and retired, and their family. We have a, a plethora of programs, frankly, some for the service people themselves, but also a couple programs for spouses, for their children. And all of our programs, as I mentioned, are clinically led. So there is a master's level or above clinician leading the group of uniformed first responders or their family through a culturally appropriate program to assist them in either their PTSD or those that suffer from the same symptoms but don't necessarily have a, an official diagnosis or a confirmed diagnosis of PTSD. We help them with their operational stress injuries. Wow, that is a mouthful and a half. I'm sure you've uh, got quite good at reciting that. That is, uh, and with no with no problems there in any of that. Fantastic. Well, I'm I'm really happy to hear that you guys have the programs and the outreach that you have. You also have a really great uh, community behind your behind your programs. I've personally been. Uh, interacted with them on a on a semi-regular basis over the past few years and I can say that the programs that you guys have applied uh, to the veteran community and the first responder community have been useful there's no there's no questioning that at, at, at any mean and I think what's really fascinating about Wounded Warriors Canada and one of the reasons I wanted to have more of a in-depth conversation with you is because I think there's way more behind the curtain than people see and I think in a good way. And I think that should be acknowledged. And I think people should really realize what it takes to run a program or programs on the scale in which you guys do, but also in the way that you guys use your funds and how you use your funds and, and being, being, you know, a nonprofit uh, or what they call in the States is the 5013C. And like I said, we have our Americans. Uh, so, you know, you guys really do a lot of work and you get, you get huge checks and the programs you guys do are, saving lives and they're saving families. And I think that's important. An important aspect to talk about is, um, there's a program I would love you to, uh, ex explain a little more, maybe, um, in the COPE program. And I, I would just love you to hear you talk about that because I think a lot of our listeners have, you know, spouses that were in the military or first responders. And I personally know enough of them that don't actually have any help or treatment for their husband or wife, but they see the symptoms and they're getting worse and worse and worse and they don't know where to turn. Absolutely. And I think a big thing of it, and I know you keep talking about behind the curtains, but really 
uh, behind the curtains are everyday Canadians and those that give us donations. Uh, as a charity and charitable organization, we have currently uh, four people that are on that aspect of it, right? There, are, There's really our communications, our partnership. Uh, one of our members assists with those uh, fundraising events that are held by third parties. Uh, Rupture remembers the, there's a number of runs. Our Ride for the Mental Health, our Ride for Mental Health that uh, we did virtually this year in Ottawa. It really is the donations from everyday Canadians that that really help us and give us that horsepower. On the health services side, frankly, there's the uh, director of health services, uh, Phil Ralph, uh, captain retired actually, and myself. And we we have a uh, another coordinator, Catherine Linford, that helps us with coordinating uh, our programs as well. So it, it's really a, a, a majority of the horsepower comes from the donations of everyday Canadians and, and some of the corporations that provide us with funds. Uh, Couples Overcoming PTSD Every Day is a fantastic program. Uh, actually, she's now helping us do some of the coordination for our health services. But Chris and Catherine Linford uh, approached our clinical director, Tim Black, uh, Dr. Tim Black, uh, a number of years ago, with this idea for helping not just the service member who is suffering from PTSD, but understanding that there is a family unit. And the initial and the start of that family unit really is, you know, the, the husband and wife or, you know, the, 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 the partners exist as a couple. They, they took all of the, the concepts and the help that they had received, uh, and Chris being a, a service member, a Lieutenant Colonel retired, uh, understanding his own journey through PTSD, worked with Dr. Tim Black, who is essentially, as I understand it, one of the preeminent uh, trauma therapists and group therapists here in Canada, and they developed this program for couples. And it is, at this point, as it's developed for Wounded Warriors Canada, a week-long program. So the, the couples will arrive at one of our locations and we do, uh, and I will use the word avoid, uh, we avoid institutions. We understand that a lot of our members, we, whether it be veterans or military members, but also our service members, they are often what we sometimes call bringing their clients, so the people they interact on a professional level, to institutions. And that's not really where they want to be able to get their help. They want to get help somewhere outside of where and places that they interact with on a professional level. So we have a number of locations across Canada, right from uh, the island out in British Columbia, all the way out to PEI as well. And we've had programs run in Nova Scotia and, and in New Brunswick. And we select these locations so that they are somewhat away from the hustle and bustle of uh, what would be considered sort of a, a larger resort, if you will. Uh, we have used Hockley Valley here in Ontario. We've used uh, uh, the Prestige in Souk, BC. Uh, and we've used a number of uh, sumac farms also out in Nova Scotia have, have been venues that we've used as Wounded Warriors Canada. And that's so we can provide that calm, out-of-the-way area for these people to get help. Uh, now, Couples Overcoming PTSD obviously is for couples, and it is a program that is designed for those that have a formal diagnosis of PTSD. Uh, two clinicians always uh, run, run our programs, and that's also the case for COPE. Uh, it is run by two clinicians that take normally five couples uh, through a series of psychoeducational uh, modules, as well as just communication and interpersonal aspects and exercises during the five days that they're uh, at the, the, the COPE program. 
One of the other unique aspects that we include with our programs is a ride-along couple. So obviously for a couple program, it is a couple. For our individual programs, it is an, an individual who has already completed the program. So apart from the five couples that are on the program and the two clinicians that are running the program, we have a couple that has already completed the program along for the ride to provide that moral and cultural support to our members that are taking that. Uh, I will tell you as a uniform service member myself, there is in fact a cultural divide between those of us that wear a uniform and serve our country, whether it be at a national level in the armed forces or at a local or municipal level or provincial level in the police, fire, or EMS, corrections, uh, the Coast Guard as well. You know, we, we've all chosen to serve for some reason and it does in fact, unfortunately in some cases, set us apart from uh, everyday Canadians. And that culturally appropriate venue and the, the stability that the ride-along couple brings uh, assists the group in creating that cohesion that is so creating that therapeutic relationship with the clinicians that are running the program. It really is somewhat the, the secret sauce, if you will. The, the clinicians themselves, although they are very well trauma uh, trained, they've got extensive and our selection process for clinicians is quite rigorous. Uh, they certainly have to have some experience dealing with uniform first responders, but by and large, they themselves have never worn a uniform. And so, although they have a lot of background and understand the culture, many of them don't belong to the culture of uniform service and that ride-along couple or that ride-along person in our programs helps bridge that gap and that creates that therapeutic relationship which actually allows the group to start opening up showing some of their vulnerabilities so they can deal with some of these very difficult issues whether it just be the communication issues between the the two partners in a spousal relationship or just you know addressing in in part some of the trauma aspects of what's happened to the relationship uh, and, and the effect that PTSD has had on the relationship. Uh, the program, as I run, uh, and uh, runs for those five days in, in one of the locations, and we run it uh, concurrently or independently across the country. Uh, and there is a six-month follow-up where the clinicians, after the, the couples depart those five days, will conduct three calls a month one with each of the, the, the people in that group, in that couple, but also a third call with them as a couple to discuss the, the things that they set out. Part of COPE, you set a plan and you set out some goals that you'd like to achieve. And essentially, it's a monthly check-in individually and as a couple with each of the couples that, ran, that were on the program to see how they're doing, how they're progressing. So realistically, if you look at it, it is almost a full six-month program because of that, those check-ins that happen monthly afterwards. Uh, and the, just not to sort of belabor a point, but the fact that we are gathered in a group of uniformed service personnel, I know a lot of uh, people will talk about the fact that, no, no, it will not work. You can only have police grouped with police and veterans grouped with active or retired military people. Frankly, it is a cultural service is, is really the aspect that we've captured. And we run many groups that are a mix of police, fire, EMS, veterans, 
And frankly, within the first minute or two, all the actual individual uniforms themselves, if you will, dissolve and you don't see them anymore. You just know that the other people in the room have served and have served for good reason and need the help that you need. And you're not alone in that need for help. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow, you really nailed that program. I this is what I was hoping for. This is this is exactly what I was hoping for from you. Is I I think it's it's one thing to have a conversation with someone and then there's another thing to go on a website and to read something. And I think there's a large drastic difference and this is why exactly I wanted to talk to you Stephen because hearing the passion in your voice but but hearing the you know, you know the success behind it. You know how good it can be. You know it can work and you've seen it work. And that that holds a whole different level of, you know, cards for people when you when you hear it. And um, I'm so glad to hear you explain it the way you have because I did get the privilege of actually hearing Chris and Catherine talk about it um, on our trip with the Wounded Warriors. And uh, it was interesting because the way they explained it. Um, I found it fascinating because what I, what I think is me personally and, and and just you know from the the people I've spoken with what I find the most difficult uh, is is having a spouse if they are a civilian and being on the other end of that um, you know just just from my perspective personally I mean I my husband met me right before I got hurt and then had to deal with the ramifications of whatever it was that I was gonna be after that and and stuck with that and um, the thing about that is it's not easy to do, and you know that. And I saw a wedding ring on your finger. You're married. You get it. I'm sure your wife uh, gets it. And you, you get a different... Yeah, you get a different type of person when you, when you deal or are married to... Um, a uh, service member of some of some kind, and um, that can come as a positive or it can come as a negative, and it sometimes can come as a mix. And the the saddest thing I think I ever heard uh, in our community and within, you know, even while deployed, and I'm not sure if you ever heard of, of any of this, but um, particularly with the American culture, was a lot of divorce happening very early on to a deployment, or a lot of. Um, another individual kind of leaving during that deployment. Um, and then once they got home, having a lot of issues with dealing with the wife or the spouse because they're not, that spouse did not have the tools to understand what was going on with that person. And, you know, I understand it's, it's on that, that other service member to try to their best to explain it, but unfortunately we, we can't explain it. Um, it comes out in anger, it comes out in frustration, it comes out in drinking, it comes out in drugs, it comes out in, it comes out in all these different forms depending on the person. And I think, uh, I think this program in particular might be one of my favorite ones you guys run. Um, I've never participated in it personally. I have been one of the uh, few, I, I would say few veterans that has been semi-supported through VAC. Um, took a while, but we got there. And now that we're there, it's, you know, it's, it's a long journey for some vets and some it happens right away. And I've been fortunate enough to have a, uh, one of the few very good case managers that exists in that community. And I will tell you, um, because of that, I was set up with doctors where fortunately, I'd like to say, I didn't need to use your program. Um, and I think, I think, that just goes to show, um, number one, I think it's very rare for vets to get 100% of what they need when they get out um, because of the backlog. 
So this is why I'm in love with this program because it fills that gap. And when we started our company, the number one thing we said we wanted to do was not only provide funding, but provide awareness for the veteran and first responder community that fell through the cracks and aren't getting that attention that they need and should be getting. Um, and then it falls under the charities like you guys to take up initiatives and create programs like this. And I think that's incredible. So I, you know, I'm very, I'm very, uh, I want to say I'm very fortunate. I didn't have to use your program, but I am one of the rare ones. And I know there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of families out there that could use your program and, you know, would be very fortunate to have the opportunity to get to your program. So I guess my next question um, rolling into that is for this type of program to function on uh, the scale that it does, and I'm assuming on the scale you want it to continue to grow to and continue to thrive to, um, what is the average cost for one family, so one husband and wife or wife and wife or husband and husband, what is the cost associated? And the reason I'm asking that is because it gives an idea to people donating, you know, their money really has a major impact, even if it's $5. Absolutely. And so uh, two aspects to that, frankly, uh, for the service member themselves, like our programs are, as we say, fully funded. We cover all clinical costs, all accommodations, all meals, and frankly, for uh, the aspect of, and I have a, a participant that I coordinated through through a travel agency that we work with, because frankly, I'm good at some things, but finding flights and figuring it all out, not really my forte. <laughs> but we, we do Just know your strengths, know your weaknesses and stick to them, right? And there you go. Exactly right. So so we, we do certainly use a, a travel agency to assist us. But, you know, I, I, I coordinated with them and we have flown uh, a service member from the Northwest Territories down to uh, Calgary for one of our, our couples equine therapy program. Uh, I think I, uh, and I don't remember the name, unfortunately, but I think I discovered one of the smallest towns on the upper east, uh, northern, most northern eastern uh, peninsula of uh, Newfoundland and organized enough hotels and flights and cars and all the rest of it to get them to our program in uh, Nova Scotia to the the couples equine therapy that was there as well. We do cover the the major uh, transportation costs if required. Generally, we ask service members if you're in Calgary and you're going up to Rocky Mountain House or if you're already in Victoria and going out to Souk, Souk BC, we ask that you you foot the bill for a tank of gas or two type thing, uh, but nothing extravagant. And so. Uh, on that end of things, our programs are fully funded. Uh, as you can imagine, with uh, two fully qualified clinicians running the programs, the accommodations and meals that go along with, generally we have about a dozen people participating on our programs, give or take. Uh, you know, these costs do do add up very, very quickly. And frankly, the, the biggest cost that we bear for all of our programs are those clinical costs. Uh, we know and have seen a lot of organizations that exist, and we certainly have supported many of them in our past, in our previous iteration, before we were really a, a, a health services provider. Uh, and, and we did. We, we funded programs that were more like respite care, and those absolutely have a, a, a place and a piece of the puzzle for everyone's continuum of care. But our programs are clinically led, and the bulk of our costs come from the, the clinical costs of having a proper, fully qualified clinician running those programs. Uh, you know, a, a COPE program and, and our trauma resiliency program will cost in, in the vicinity and upwards of $40,000 per program. And so 
you know, it is not an insignificant cost as we are bringing all these people in and we are using very talented clinicians as, as well as the ride-along couple or ride-along people that come. And, and then the costs certainly uh, are, are not just a drop in the bucket. Uh, frankly, I think the, the best part of all that, although it is, you know, an expensive uh, affair to run, you know, 84% of all donations are going directly to our health services. So, you know, we are very focused on making sure that our organization exists to provide the care and provide the programs. As I mentioned, like really totally, we are really a, a, an organization of six people. Right? There, there are very few of us and we, we do a lot of very good work. And we have contracted and we have that work for us uh, near 100 clinicians across the country that provide this service to us. We absolutely have a model whereby we hire full-time our clinicians and they belong to us and we would have a huge employee bank, if you would. And, and that would just, I believe, set us up for failure at this point. We want to make sure that we can stay as agile as possible, have clinicians across the country, come do our programs when they are available and 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 they are are happy to do so we 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 actually publish we'd like to run this many trauma resiliency programs this many spousal resiliency programs this many couples equine therapy programs here are the provisional dates that we think we can make this work and these clinicians jump all over it so we're, we're never really searching or having a hard time with them they want to participate but this is part of what they do in their service back to all of us. They have generally their own clinical uh, setup, whether it is, you know, a home clinic or they belong to a larger organization and work in an institution. Uh, you know, they have their normal incomes as well, but provide us and we willingly pay for their expertise to come and be and work on our programs. And that's one of the ways that we can keep and ensure that the donations that we get go directly to the uniformed service people and their, their families. Uh, in the same way, you know, we, we do continue to sponsor some doctoral scholarships for uh, trauma uh, education. And one of, oh, our, one of our fantastic uh, recipients, uh, you know, she did a fantastic job. Uh, we, 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 she, she earned the, the uh, doctoral scholarship from us, you know, finished her studies, you know, established herself a little bit more, worked and continued to work with her sister and the uh, Military Family Resource Centre. And turned around and said, look, Wounded Warriors Canada, you were very good to me. I understand family is a big piece of what we are trying to help. You have a uh, Couples Overcoming PTSD Everyday program. I understand you have this thing and this sort of a spousal resiliency program, which is great. I'm not really interested in that. I have a kids <laughs> program for you. And so Jaris uh, oh, oh. and Elena came to us and said, here is the Warrior Kids program. It's a Warrior Kids camp. And as soon as the pandemic hit, frankly, it was very, very quick turnaround. They said, this is horrible. We can't actually gather in a camp as a group. Because no, no, pandemic. we can't. Here is the virtual version. So we also have the virtual oh, no, kids oh, no way. providing that trauma education and understanding for kids so they understand why mom or dad are acting the way they act. What's going on? How, how can I speak about it and process why I see, for example, why is mom angry today? Or, you know, why, why is dad not really paying attention and seems to be in his own little world? Like we are providing the tools to the kids of, you know, first responders and military people, 
you know, uniformed first responders and uniformed service personnel the tools they need to understand what's going on with their their family. Wow, I I have never heard uh, of this virtual kids camp. Uh, I've never heard of the, the 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 kids program, and I I will say I you, you really piqued my interest with that there because um, I'm a mom now and uh, I have a tiny human that looks nothing like me and walks and talks like his father, but he is four years old and as a terror, but he feeds off me right? Energy. He feeds off my energy. And when I'm having a hard, hard day or a week or a month or a couple months, because we all know that ebbs and flows and it's very much, you know, it happens, depends on uh, what happened to you, depends on how your, your uh, treatment goes. It, you know, there's, there's always things that pop up, right? And unfortunately with COVID, I don't know if you guys saw it, but we had an abundance of uh, just regular service members reaching out saying, I'm struggling being on my own. I'm, I'm struggling not being able to go to my groups. I'm struggling. Yeah, I tried the Zoom thing. It's not enough. Like, I can't. You're not getting that, like, you know, interaction that, you know, shoot the shit, ribbing, that kind of time that they have with their buddies. And, um, I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough not to have to stop during COVID because... I already keep a tight enough knit crew here. And, uh, you know, we didn't, uh, we started doing masks for the government. So they kept us as essential. We found a way around that. <laughs> we found the loophole. But uh, either way, it was still positive. So, you know, I didn't have to go through as much of that uh, um, uh, isolation as many of our vets and first responders are. And um, I did notice, though, a tone and change in me and my... Um, lack of patience, my uh, inability to keep that in check just because of the stress of it all. Not because anything crazy had happened to me. You know, I, I was able to pay my bills. I was able to have a roof over my head. I didn't, you know, you know, didn't lose my home like so many did and uh, have so many other uh, mental health issues. Uh, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate during this COVID time, but I know there is and oh, a massive amount of people, the suicide rate has gone up. And I've never heard of this kids program. I need to know all about this program because I'm telling you, if my son, you know, in two years comes to me and says, hey, mom, why do you have an attitude problem? It's like, well, listen here, kid, let's have a chat. Because, you know, there's a way to talk to kids about this stuff. And um, I don't know how to do that. I'm, I will tell you when I'm inexperienced in something, I will tell you when I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. And I will tell you when I know what I'm talking about. And this is something I am so out to space on. I got no clue. And, but my fear is talking to, trying to talk to him without knowing how to do it properly because I don't want to scar this kid. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want him to see mommy as a broken thing or mommy as an angry thing. Um, but I want, I want him to understand. So could you elaborate a little bit on like what that means and what that looks like? Sure. And so so the the Warrior Kids Camp, both the the in-person and the virtual, really uh, centers on some uh, age appropriate, of course. And, and, you know, childhood education is a little bit more complex than, than adult education. It changes things and making sure that we have the right terms and the right way of addressing all of these things with them. And, and uh, 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 full disclosure, uh, I am not only a member of Wounded Warriors Canada and have known uh, the Director of Health Services for many years. Uh, we we are in the same regiment together, frankly, and have been before he retired. He was the padre at uh, the Engineer Regiment, to which I still belong. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I have benefited 
uh, in past before I worked for Wounded Warriors Canada and and now also now that I'm here, you know I, I I've taken two of their programs and the 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 information that we are sharing across all our programs is quite common, you know we don't actually you know get into great detail with the children about their amygdala and how you know they the, the interact you know smell and memory and the fact that there's this biological interact like absolutely I, you know we don't get to that detail but we talk about how the brain processes things to, and and the program instills in them the knowledge and understanding of what's going on the the emotional roller coaster that that actually can happen and it provides them primarily also with tools as to how to address some of these things uh, you know, they're they're for the the older group because they are broken into two age groups in order to make sure that uh, the message is appropriate for each of the groups. And so the older uh, children, the teens, if you will, also, you know, we can use slightly different language because, you know, they have a, a larger vocabulary and a, and a slightly better understanding. But make no mistake, as you mentioned, the children absolutely know what's going on. As best as we think that we are hiding things from them and they don't understand that we're impatient or frustrated or angry or whatever the, the case may be, as you say, they feed off our energy and they absolutely know something is happening if they don't exactly know what. And so we provide them with, with a number of tools and 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 one of which is, is the, uh, uh, I'm gonna get the name wrong now, unfortunately. Warrior Kids, Kids Program. Yeah, so there's there's a jar, and 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 I am unfortunately coming to a blank, but it's it's almost a discussion jar, okay. if you will, yeah. where they get yeah. a chance to write it down and put it in there. Like they have questions or things that they notice and things, and there's a whole process that's explained to them as to how to deal with this jar. So they get to make their little jar, decorate it, add add you know the the title, which is really irritating me that I can't think about it right now. It's okay. It's okay. It'll come back. You'll come back to it and then it'll be mid conversation. Take this jar with those things, those pieces of paper and questions and things they want to talk about. And we, we show them and we have them practice with us how to broach that subject. Hey, listen, let's take one out and let's talk about this. And, you know, it just allows for that open communication to understand that you're, as you say, right. Mommy's not a broken thing. You know, it's just there are things going on right now in the same way that, uh, you know, I, I my kids ask me all the time. I went this morning and I don't have it on anymore, but I don't need a blood this morning. And I get home. My kids are like, hey, what's that that wrap around your arm? Why do you have so much gauze there? And it's like, it's just an easy conversation. Well, this nurse, she was very nice. She checked out my vein. She stuck a needle in my vein. Some of my blood came out. It goes in a bag. It is absolutely a normal process that happens. And in the same way, well, you know what? Today I woke up. I was thinking a little bit more about my tour than I usually did. So I was preoccupied, a little bit frustrated. And I didn't hear you when you wanted to share your drawing with me or something like that. And it's just a conversation. Mm -hmm. It is something that's going on. And the both the in-person and the, the virtual kids camp uh, allows for this to happen. Obviously, the in-person camp, it, it is a weekend camp that we run. They show up. There are a number of uh, idea and activity stations that help them in their learning process about uh, operational stress injuries, about communication, about understanding, uh, things like that. For the virtual kids camp, uh, the, the, the program essentially is self-contained. A box is packaged up with a nice children's book that was written by these clinicians, along with uh, a number of things like uh, a little pot of Play-Doh and some markers and some other things that gets delivered to your house. And then once a week at the, the appointed time, 
the clinicians with all of these children on the, the their screens because although I don't really like to admit it, what does my 14 and 12 year old prefer to do right now? Sit on YouTube and whatever else and on their screen. So I get it. I get it. Natural, you know, very easy for them yeah. to adjust to seeing people and talking to people on their screens. And they go through the box, you know, they take some things out, they deal with it, they work, they talk about it, they create that cohesion amongst the other kids that are in the program with them. And as I understand it, of course, it's a closed group, because why wouldn't it be? It's a, you know, a sensitive group to belong to. But they've carried on and now have Facebook groups of virtual kids camps. And those children continue to uh, discuss things with each other. And every now and again, the clinicians, of course, are popping in to see what's going on, just to you know refresh and 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 help them along as they continue to keep contact with those people that were in the virtual kids camp with them. That's so incredible. That that's I I had no idea, and I I, I feel horrible for not knowing about this, only because this is something that I think uh, more people need to know about. I think this program is not only beneficial for the parents, uh, but I and the kids, but I think it has a lot more to do with being able to give that communicative, that kid, that communication tool to have that discussion with their parents, no matter the age. And I will say that is, a, you know, one thing that you'll see that's a lot harder nowadays to have a discussion with your child. I mean, for us, you know, we're not at the age yet where Jack's on, you know, social media and an iPad and all that stuff 24-7, but I know that's coming. And I know uh, what it's like to ask him what preschool's like. And I uh, get a, fine. Okay, cool, but like, what what else happened in your life? Can we Can we elaborate? Did you climb trees today? No. Okay, but like, what did you do instead of the trees? Like, the, you know, you have to pull information out of these kids. And if you, if they feel like at any point they, you know, I can go up to mom and dad, no matter, you know, what they're doing, mind you, you know, being busy, but you know, I can go up to mom and dad and I can, I can have that open and honest conversation. What I think people will start to see is after their kids potentially participate in this program is not only is it going to give them a sense of community where there are other kids out there that are like me, that in itself is a win. And the reason I say that is we know based on studies that, you know, when somebody is given a community, the chances of them going, you know, uh, self-harm or, you know, suicide, like you have other people to lean on. And the community-based programs often give the most success um, long-term uh, with children, especially going into early, early adolescence with, uh, you know, social media and all that jargon that's out there being thrown at them. Absolutely. And as we well know that, you know, a large part or a portion of the, the way our physiology works and our brain works, that, you know, trauma is somewhat formed by that negative social uh, reinforcement that we receive. And it, it causes perhaps the emotion to not be fully properly processed or, or whatever aspect of it may be. But that negative social response that we receive is in part why we end up with these, uh, you know, stress injuries. And the, the community of having other like-minded, whether it be service members, like-minded children that are, are, are within families of service members, the spouses that understand that I am a spouse of a service member, and, and this is you know, a unique culture that we belong to, providing that positive social response to allow for the, the, the emotional uh, trajectory to fully and completely be processed allows us to in part, 
understand what's happening with us. And as we go through uh, additional events or, or things in our lives, that emotional trajectory can just happen and we understand what's happening and we can get and seek that positive social response from our peers. But moreover, when we actually start looking at some of the past traumatic events that are in fact injuries, having that positive social uh, support will give us that post-traumatic growth that we are seeking to take these traumatic events from being traumas into, albeit somewhat sad or, or, or negative uh, memories, but they go from being traumas to memories. And, and, and it is allowing for that process to take place appropriately. Yeah, and I think that's incredible just, you know, creating that environment and and giving those kids the tools to have those conversations. And I think, like I said, uh, you know, leading into that, creating that community, but then giving that um, that confidence level uh, for that child that they don't need to hide how they feel when a parent is going through something. But also while you guys have given that jar and you've given those tools to start those conversations about things that are bothering them that are affecting, you know, that are being affected by, because of their parents. The thing that I think is interesting is it also, you know, subconsciously gives them the tools to talk to them about anything else. So, you know, if they know they can go and say, Hey mom, I know you're, you're having a hard time right now, but it's really making me feel some kind of way. Um, I'm hopeful that down the road that would turn and snowball into I can talk to my mom and dad about anything hey I'm being pressured by so and so to do this in high school I don't feel comfortable with it um, but I feel comfortable enough coming to you about it like that might not normally have happened in that kid's life or in that parent's life if they didn't have those tools taught by this program um, I think that's really incredible I'm not going to lie to you I'm totally going to steal that jar idea for Jack and uh I'm going to start that early on and be like, when you're mad, I don't care if it's a scribble, you go put it in that jar and we'll have a conversation about it. Like, you know, that's great. I think, I think giving them something like that is such a tangible uh, way to express themselves and their frustrations. And I love how you, you know, you decorate it and you make it this special thing and you make them a part of it rather than saying, here's your jar. Tell me when you're pissed off. I know, I know, Helena and Jaris. Next time on my our, our, our weekly uh, update call, or after they see this, are going to turn around and go, "Come on, Steve, this is what it's called. You should have remembered." That's okay because right now I'm just going to call it the the jar program because I think it's fantastic. Uh, I mean, that, that you, works you, well. I'm sure there's a running there's a running joke there. There's a jarhead joke in there somewhere, but I I won't I won't I won't. So I I think that's I think that's so cool. So I'm super. I'm super thrilled that, uh, see, this is, like I said, why this conversation I think is important is some people may know about some of your programs, but even people like me who I think I'm somewhat involved and on a level and connected, I didn't know. And I think that does a disservice to the work you guys are doing. Um, I want to go back to one other thing. When you were mentioning to me how you have, you know, the four to six people or whatever uh, that work within the program and you keep it really tight knit and you keep it as compact as possible so it can run as efficiently, as efficiently and as quick as it does. Um, when you mentioned the clinicians that you bring, that you work with as well, do they, do they donate their time or do they get billed to Veterans Affairs? Like, is that something they, they try to do, uh, you know, partially, or is that all like we have to pay them and that's what it is? And, and, and so we, what we wanted to make sure is that we weren't actually, you know, trying to uh, seek donations from them as well and, and as a donation of their oh, time. Okay. And we recognize that they, in fact, have a very specialized skill and they should be properly mm -hmm. compensated for it. And so we do. We pay them for their clinical time. 
and, and that is yeah. really the, yeah. the bulk of, 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 uh, of the program costs. Now, uh, certainly we have received from them uh, a tremendous amount of what I will call clinical time from them in the uh, not only the creation, but the, the betterment of those programs. So, so we, we don't often get a bill from them saying, I spent you know, six hours this month uh, making the spousal resiliency program better mm-hmm. or, or the couples acquiring therapy. Uh, you know, we, we recognize that there are some additional clinical aspects that would just make it much more powerful. Here's the bill for our time. You know, they are very much engaged with us to, to providing and making those programs as best as they can be. But absolutely, when they are providing the, the trauma therapy, and although it is a group setting, they, they are providing trauma therapy in each of our programs to the participants. And, and rightly so, they, you know, they have a tremendous amount of, uh, of insurance and other, uh, you know, they, they are all registered within the appropriate uh, colleges within the, the various provinces so that they actually can continue to uh, act and, and conduct the controlled act as they do within the different provinces. Uh, and we compensate them for it as, you know, that is, you know, our, our the value we bring as uniformed service uh, personnel, we're compensated for that. Their clinical professional uh, expertise is, 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 and should be in, in our opinion, you know, well compensated. And, and we do, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't, you know, we're not charged exorbitant rates from them. We are charged what is considered yeah. a normal yeah. rate and, and we are happy to compensate them for their professional expertise. Well, that's fantastic. No, that's why I was curious because, you know, when you, when you say all paid programs, I think, I think people forget that, you know, there are some people that are able to volunteer their time. Some people, you know, run a practice, but they really are heavily involved in the veteran community and they feel a sense of responsibility, but obviously, you know, people have to pay their bills. So I love that, that, you know, you know, it it makes, it makes sense. Um, but like I said, one of those things that, you know, it's good to know. Um, I do have, uh, a couple touchy questions. Uh, you may, we can edit this out if you're uncomfortable, but I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm curious, um, shoot, not physically. Don't say that. Why would you say that? Well, listen, I'm a combat engineer, so I, I don't mind shooting. It's blowing things up. That is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You're the blow up guy. I'm the guy that drops the stuff around you, but hopefully doesn't mess up my coordinates real quick. I don't, I'm telling you, I served with a lot of your combat engineers and, um, uh, my God. I, we'll get into that conversation after, but that's that's a whole other ball game. That's a different type of soldier right there. That's a that's a hard MF in my opinion. Um, so I want to talk about. I saw something. Um, I like I said, I like to stay involved with our veteran groups and our you know all these all these uh, groups. But I saw something. And I'm a little curious about it. You want to let me know what in the hell is going on with the Legion and Wounded Warriors and tell us. Well, uh, I'm not really all that sure what you're what you're getting at. I know Ontario Command of the Legion is providing us with a quite substantial donation for our PTSD service dogs, and they they do fund uh, a number of pairings. I think yeah, yeah. yeah. on the number, but, but, then, but then yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's all great. No, that's not what I'm touching base on here. I'm touching base on uh, I saw an article that the Legion was coming after Wounded Warriors for using a Poppy logo um, in the Telus. Um, in the telesads, uh, I could be, and so I, I, and rightly so. I understand the Legion; they they have the copyright of the of the poppy. Uh, generally, a lot of these things, like the the telesad, I'm not actually familiar with that to to be 
very frank and, and open. I, I know okay. there are a lot of organizations yeah, no, I'm asking banks, a lot of other people that use the poppy and they think that it's sort of just that's why news. i'm confused uh, we, we we are very clear and i know our uh, director of partnerships uh, steve does a great job of working with all the third party uh fundraising yeah. events and and others and you know we're, we're quite clear we understand that the poppy uh, belongs to them but by and large it's normally when it's just sort of used innocuously we don't recognize or the organization that's using it uh, doesn't actually recognize and it's a third party on our behalf generally so you know my my yeah. perception at, at least is that they really didn't know that that's something that the that the legion owns and and proper permission for use is needed uh, and i and as far as i know around the office here uh you know i've heard a couple mm -hmm. times when steve's in the hallway saying Oh yeah, you know we heard about the poppy this or or other things this and you know we yeah. really didn't have and really it's just it, it it happens we we get notified of of things like that where perhaps one of our third party partners has has not used things wholly appropriately mm -hmm. and we fix it and we just move on like there's there's just oh I, oh, I don't there's think there's no harm no foul we we continue to get donations the 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 partner continues to support us and we just move on. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. I The reason I, I'm touching base on it is because I was in a group and um, somebody had posted about it. Uh, somebody had posted the article in the news about it that had came out, uh, that had come out, sorry. And um, I found that really interesting. And the reason being is I I don't understand law, but I do, I do kind of understand trademark law uh, only because I played that game with my company and my copyrights, right? So I get that. But um, what I am a little confused about is how the legion could actually come after you for a picture of a poppy when it's a physical poppy i we I, you know i went back and forth and um the poppy that was used is not their poppy and uh legally as far as i'm concerned uh, and as far as i was aware and i could be wrong on this and feel free to correct me anybody else out there but um is that you can't own a picture, like you cannot own a flat, like you can't own the poppy. You can own the picture of the poppy in which they trademarked, but the picture in which they used in that ad was a physical flower, which looks nothing like walks, like talks, like is like anything like that. So I, I was curious because it kind of started a firestorm in these groups. And I think you should take a look because people were kind of backing you guys left, right and center going, this is BS. You, you know, they're supposed to be, you know, this other people are supposed to be uh, a charity for our veterans, but yet are the most disconnected, what it seems like charity out there. And don't get me wrong. I love the Legion, but I haven't even seen anybody out there this year at all, nor has anybody been reached out to, to offer their services to actually make sure those poppies get out. Um, so, you know, I, Tell us, yes, correct. Tell, Tell us. Right. Well, I, 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 I I'll, I'll send you guys the I, links I after this. I'll have, I'll have to take, take yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it at all. Yeah, no worries. Like I said, I wanted to bring it up only because I felt it was very uh, wrong of the Legion to be doing that. And I'm very okay with saying that. I think, listen, they do their best. They donate money. That's all great. They're doing what they think is right. But I think it's time for a ch change of command here. So, so frankly, to, to, to be very fair to everybody, we and, and you'll notice as we talk a little bit more about some of our other pro programs and, mm -hmm. and some of our upstream resiliency programs that we offer, like before operational stress or our trauma-informed leadership or our trauma resiliency training, uh, you'll notice in the, in the gamut of what we provide, there is no peer support at this point. Like we don't have, and I get, I get mm -hmm. personally, because I am the health services coordinator, a lot of calls saying, 
you know, I'm out of touch, as you say, right, with this socially distanced and, and frankly, it really should be physically as opposed to socially distanced. A lot of calls yeah, saying, like, yeah. I, I need a peer, I need to talk to somebody. We don't do that. And there's a very good reason for it, apart from the fact that, you know, we're, we're busy enough as is. But we recognize there <laughs> yeah, are other people out there that have this under control and that there is no one service or one organization that has the answers, all of the answers. No, we no. all have a part to play. No. And, and, and we're very much of, and we talk about a lot of other organizations, and I do, I, I point them in a number of different uh, directions saying, listen, mm -hmm. we know these guys have a lot of, uh, you know, there's one in particular that has uh, pages and pages and pages of links and resources that you can do research, and they've mm -hmm. got probably one of the best sets of, of resource links. Go have a look at them. Who's that? Who's guys, that? They have a crisis line. They have a peer support group. They are essentially national. You know, and, and if you want to talk, they, they have an 800 number and it, it, they, they disable call display so they don't know or record who's calling. Go talk to them because they do great work as well. And all of the partnerships are you talking with with our police services and our fire services and our EMS uh, organizations is very much a partnership to say, you know, your wellness and HR or whatever you call them, uh, you know, programs internally are fantastic and are a good piece of the puzzle. We at Wounded Warriors are just another piece of the pie and another step in a continuum of care that might be of use, but may not. And if it's not, that's fine too. Mm -hmm. Of course. I mean, are you were you speaking specifically about the Legion when you said they have a hotline number? Or were you just saying in generalized, like in generalized, other charities have? I've had a number of veterans come to me and say, listen, you know what, I need help. I don't know how to deal with VAC. There are a lot of, uh, you know, yeah. I, I know Ontario Command, but also a lot of the local legions themselves has a, a, a veteran, um, a Veterans Affairs Coordinator. I don't remember what the title is, but, yeah. you know, people yeah. specifically at various legions that can help you navigate, as you well know, sort of the complexity of uh, Veterans yeah. Affairs Canada. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, yeah. we yeah, recognize I that everybody's got a role to play. I'd like to see, I mean, from a standpoint on an outsider and also a veteran standpoint, but also an advocate standpoint, I'd like to see them doing, uh, kind of stepping up in my opinion. They, I feel, here's the thing. I feel, uh, this is not my own feeling. This is a group feeling. I feel that the Legion has tried for a very long time to do the very, very best that they can with the tools and the finances they have. Here's where I think the ball has been dropped. I think they have provided a location where I will say I live in British Columbia. I'm not on the East Coast. Fair enough. That makes a massive, massive dis difference. And I'm saying that so that our listeners understand when you're from Canada, the way that our bases are, uh, a lot of our combat arms bases are kind of smack in the middle of the country and on their way out east. You don't really have a lot of that on the West Coast. You see more Air Force, uh, Navy, that sort of thing on BC's kind of side. And you see your combat arms more Edmonton, Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and outward. So that makes a massive difference on the population. And I think that's important for me to acknowledge is that this is my experience. I used to live in Ontario. I was posted to Quebec. I've been to Quebec, to Ontario. I've been to the legions in Edmonton as well as in BC. And I will say there's not been one time, not one, not a single time in uniform have I ever been welcomed. Uh, no. Um, that's me. That's me. But that's me. I... I 
I'm a different type of person. I'm a little crazier. I'm a little louder. I know when I go into those places, I'm a little quieter because I also know when I'm in a uniform and I know my rank, I know my responsibility, and I know where I stand when it comes to being in those environments. I personally love learning more and more about the older veteran stories. And I find that is the only place for me to go if I want to have a conversation with any of them. But the other thing I notice is... um, And maybe this is a personal stance. I know alcohol is a massive part of the Legion. Um, Me personally seeing as many, well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's massive. They've got a bar in each Legion. You got to say like you go to any other sort of uh, hangout location with vets, you're either going to go to uh, a Legion, you're going to go to a mess hall, they're going to be a bar. So I think it's not just the Legion. I think the alcohol in general, um, I kind of have a hard time with because What we're seeing with our generation of veterans coming up is we're seeing this finally attention being put on mental health. Finally, the attention being put on the families with mental health and having those issues. But then yet we're still seeing alcoholism being abused. We're still seeing these things being put in people's faces where, you know, maybe they might not have turned to alcohol if they were sitting with their buddies and, you know, they all weren't willing to have an open conversation instead of going here and have a pint because that's often what we do. Let's go have a beer. Let's go have a beer and talk. Let's go have a beer and talk. Rightly so, right? And that was the culture previously. And that was, you know, where the things were dealt with. And yeah, I I agree that Mm -hmm. uh, we do see a shift now that that is less and less... Uh, sort of the the go-to position, if you will. Well, here, have a beer, you feel better in the morning type thing. Uh, We don't see that as much, but you're right. I think there does need to be more, more focus on just the conversation. Yeah, and, and I think and I think that's why I, I I bring it up is because it's not it's not a a personal attack or anything like that. Like I mean, I go to the legions. My parents are part of the legions. They support it. We pay mess dues. We do the whole thing. And I think uh, it's an intricate and very integral part of our veteran community. That poppy that uh, attached to the British with the poppy and all of that. You know, I think I think that's a big part of our community. That being said, um, I would like to see the change happen now and not 20, 30 years from now. But like everybody else says in the military, you might as well just sit down on your hands, hurry up and wait, and shit will get done when it gets done. But I am more of a doer. I am more of a, well, I don't like that. Let's get some shit done. You know, and so my my goal... Warriors Canada, right? Yes, hear me out. I think Wounded Warriors is doing incredible things. I think... People like the Legion need to take notice of that and be aware of that. And I think that's where they come in. I think I would like to see alcohol stop being provided um, instead of that having a mental health expert in one of the local legions in the area on call type situation, how the police force have the uh, car, what's the car 86 with the nurse, with the psych nurse on call. Um, so, you know, I would like, that's why I bring them up. I think there's faults um, with everybody in this world. And I think that's okay. But I think it's time to start taking a serious look at mental health within our veteran first responder community and the community that we're giving and driving them to and what they provide them and what they don't. And, um, and hopefully start looking at, you know, things that can be implemented that maybe will, you know, stop alcoholism from rising and maybe the suicide crisis to go down and uh, maybe, a, you know, the spousal abuse, right? So I think there's a way to do that. I just don't think perpetuating alcohol in a location where veterans are supposed to feel welcome, especially younger veterans. So I'd like to see that change. That's my personal opinion. Just saying. Um, so for Wounded Warriors, when it comes to, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to know, because did I see, I don't know if I saw this. So I just, I feel like I saw this in passing. Do you guys have a beer? 
Does somebody have a beer that donates to Wounded Warriors? Yeah, so I believe there's, uh, and I'd have to check with my partnership, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, partnership yeah. director, Steve. But yes, absolutely, there is a there is a brewery, and actually there's a couple of breweries that provide us with uh, some funding and and a portion, I guess, is nice. really what it is of each each beer that is sold. Uh, comes to us. I know uh, there's a local yeah, I like, I like that. here in Whitby, actually, that uh, uh, during, and I don't remember what the time frame is, but, you know, during a certain period of time, uh, they're asking you to round up your bill. And if you round up to the next dollar, wow. And oh, wow. a lot of people will choose to go up to two or three, of course, you know, it's all up to them. But mm -hmm. that roundup mm -hmm. portion of their bill will come to us. And so we are supported by various organizations. And frankly, you know, mm -hmm. I know uh, Glenn Fittick, you know, is a great supporter of us. They provide a, a tremendous amount of uh, donations, frankly. Uh, and at one point, they had released a, a special reserve that, that had our logo on it for sale and everything in order to help also, you know, bring out and, and raise funds for us to provide that mental health service to uh, all our, our, our uniform service people. Mm -hmm. See, that's what I like. See, this is there's a difference between providing alcohol to struggling mental health people on uh, inconsistent level and then saying, go drive your vehicle. Um, but then there's also a way to do it right where you can partner with. And I know Honor House in British Columbia has a deal with Smuggler's Trail as well, where they have a an Honor House beer um, where uh, Smuggler's Trail, it's actually named after Trevor Green, Captain Trevor Green. Um yeah. And so then the the dollar, I think it's a dollar from every bottle. And so I like that they don't provide it in the honor house. They don't provide it in the, in their things, but you can go buy it, you know, you can go buy it in stores and then it helps out the charity. So I think, you know, that's the right way to do it. That's again, who am I to fucking say what's the right way to do anything anymore? All right. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about something else. I got a question for you. Now, I have been on one of your super duper cool bike rides and uh, I'm scheduled to go on another one of your super duper cool bike rides uh, whenever COVID decides to lift its uh, rear, rear its ugly head out of here. I, I loved it so much. Um, I want to talk about it because I think it was a transformative part of my life and I think it's important to acknowledge how how big it was for me, but I also want to, um, I want to ask some questions because there was a few things I'm, I was wondering about and um, I felt a certain way and I don't want to say I felt angry because I don't think that's the right word. I think I felt sad uh, about something and, and I really come at it from that standpoint, Stephen, because I think it's important for you to know that um, I've never met you in person and I know some of your team have and I'm the type of person they will tell you which I'm sure they briefed you on before coming on here was I'm out there I'm loud I'm gonna ask you some questions you might not like but I all come I come at all of this from the standpoint of only ever wanting to help even if it comes off horrendous and I will say a lot of my the way I speak comes off incredibly combative which I knew from get-go when I was in the military that was always an issue <laughs> it was always an issue and I've always known it and I'll always keep working on it but I swear to god it does not change it's just part of me now and I think what it is is that ride helped me in a way I can't describe my husband got the opportunity to come on the ride with me and if if uh 
if you aren't knowing what I'm talking about out there in uh, podcast land, Wounded Warriors has this incredible bike ride where they go over uh, seas and they did it with us on the 75th anniversary of D-Day where we rode, I believe it ended up being 500 kilometers uh, for Wounded Warriors Canada. And I think it was 650 to 750,000 or something was raised on that ride from 150 riders. Um, it was something around that if I'm not it was a big number. I was really pumped to see that. And um, it was, you didn't have to be a service member. You could be uh, a friend of, you could be a family member. And you got on your road bike and you rode your ass off for five straight days. And then you tried to walk on the second day and then you couldn't. So then you just got on the bike because it was much easier to do. And you, <laughs> you, you, you met a group of people and you went through hell with a group of people. You hurt with a group of people. You suffered together as one. And I think as someone who was ripped away from my unit prematurely and taken away from my job uh, the way I did not choose and medically released from the military, I can tell you the one thing that uh, people like me coming from my position, I craved that community again. I craved feeling supported again. And I craved being around people who understood that if I said something offside, it wasn't because it was meant to be offside. It was meant because that was the community that I came in. I'm working on healing myself, but I'm still a bit of an asshole. So well, I'm working frankly, on I'm it, sure right? you were craving that challenge as well, because every time I'm not in the field I, and not with the absolutely. reserves, I am with the reserves now. And when I'm not doing reserve things, but other yeah. things, I all, all often crave that challenge. I do. And that's exactly what it was. And for me, I was a competitive athlete my whole life. I was a fought Taekwondo professionally. I think I was pretty damn good at it. It's one of the only good things I was good at. And um, after I lost that, after I stopped fighting, after I stopped kicking people in the face for a living, I realized really quick, I struggled with not having competition. And so I struggled in a big way. And then I went to motocross and then I just started damaging my body on a level that is just inconceivable if I want to ever want to be able to walk around 60. And then I said, you know, I, I want to get on a road bike. I think I want to get on a road bike. You know, I, I fell in love with it the second I got one. And, um, as soon as somebody told me about, uh, it was a, a fellow vet who told me about the program, about going for this bike ride. And I got my first taste of what Wounded Warriors offers uh, when I did the bike ride in uh, British Columbia, I think it was the mental health ride we did uh, in tag team with Ontario. I don't remember the name exactly. What was it called? Do you remember the name of those rides? What's that one called? That mental health ride? That's like the 150 kilometer. Oh, so the uh, the Highway of Heroes uh, bike there ride. There it is. We go from the Afghan Memorial no, in Trenton all the way down to downtown Toronto. Yes. Yeah. So that was the Ontario one. And we did the Afghan Memorial in Langley all the way to the island over to yeah to the, the memorial in the island um that was an experience that was my first experience of being with um a group of people that were veterans that I didn't serve with that were a group of people that didn't care what my rank was what I did who I did it with just cared about uh some people cared about what happened and uh some people didn't, but we all go through our own journey. So I'm not going to judge those people who aren't able to see, you know, uh, when someone's hurt and take it for what it is. And that's okay too, right? We're all in a different part of our journey. Um, what I had a question about the, 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 the end of the ride, the ride was incredible. Everything about the ride was everything. I hoped it would be in more. Um, it sucked. It hurt. It was the best. I lost a lot of weight. I got in shape. I ate an exuberant amount of bread and wine. And one of the coolest things I got to do 
in my lifetime was to get to go to the beaches where I know my family came on to, you know, we had Canadians that came and, and saved my family. I have family from Hungary. And um, I was very grateful to be able to take those steps uh, with Russell K. That broke me. It broke me in a way I can't even describe to you. Talking to a gentleman named Russell K. So Russell K. Russell is a uh, World War II vet. He's one of the coolest people. I, I'm his 2IC. Uh, I was named as 2IC because we were the only gunners on that ride. And uh, he said, you can't leave me alone in here. Or I'm the only gunner. I said, I'm with you there, buddy. I got you. So, you know, this gentleman uh, landed on the beaches, uh, somehow made it through D-Day. I don't understand how. And came with us with Wounded Warriors. Uh, that was a trip. He hadn't been there in 75 years, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's correct. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a, and that man did not shed a single tear. And I wept like a small child on repeat just for him because you could feel the intense emotions around how he was feeling, but you could, you could feel it in the air. You could feel them, everyone there. And it was something I never thought could be that just intense uh it's not something that happened to me but it's something that you learn about and you learn and I'm a history buff and I'm I'm super obsessed with it and uh getting the chance to ride through France and um see some of the old World War II uh vehicles that were brought over for the event driving through the cities and then riding your bike and kind of doing a double take like did I just transport in time because they were dressed in the kit they were they were had the full vehicles the full motorcycles like you need to come on the ride next time with us I'm telling you that is that is something I don't often admit when something breaks me that way but that ride that ride I particularly Todd our lovely traveling friend Todd who uh, is a I want to say he's an ambassador of Wounded Warriors is that what he does McCu- is it uh, McEwen Todd Burns, perhaps. No, Todd, I'll come back to him. You'll know him when I say his name. I believe he was, uh, he was in, he was, I want to say he retired as a colonel or up there. He was, a, anyway, he travels the world now. He's an incredible dude. And um, he rides his bike and that's all he does. And uh, I got, you know, he, he had done this ride before and he, you know, told him how much it helped him. And this is a grown man who's like, 5'11", 6 foot, and I'm a 5 foot, 110 pound stick beside him. And to be able to have an, while we're riding on the bikes, going through France in this incredible just downpour of rain the day before D-Day, and I got to ride with him and ball my eyes out. I cannot tell you. I did not cry like that. I've never cried like that. Um, Except for the day I got after the operation, I got hurt on. I never cried like that. And Todd cried with me. And we just rode our bikes, just him and I, by ourselves through this and just talked and bawled and talked and bawled while riding our bikes. And I'm like, this is fucking everything. This is something every vet needs to feel. And just to be able to be on that level with somebody who was a commander who had been on several tours, who saw me as uh, an actual part of the military, but not a a weak-minded 
small woman who couldn't hack it and somebody that you know should have should have died instead of survived which my major told me so I will plan on letting that out there I think it is something that needs to be acknowledged that ride uh, can do so much um, I was thrilled to see a second ride added uh, for last year's, which would have been the ride last year for the, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Netherlands. Um, I can't, I can't, I can't speak its praises enough. I mean, uh, you know, the team you work with, Magic Places, um, having those guys take us through places, like there's no way you would have never, you would never have got to go through parts of that country the way we did where the soldiers walked and the, the, you can still see the, you know, the firing lines. We went to the artillery guns. We went, you know, just everything about it, being on that beach, being with that group of people, whether everybody got along or not, it, there was something that bonded us in a weird way. And uh, I'll never forget that ride as long as I live. And then I was fortunate enough to have one of the Wounded Warrior bike rides uh, when I donated, when we donated, I got one of those special bikes from Cervelo. And um, really, that's when the transformative moment happened for me, when I got that bike at the ride, that uh, Highway of Heroes ride. Um, and then I got that frame, and uh, that's when I felt like, okay, there are other people out there like me, and it's okay to not be all right, but it's also my job to be responsible for my my healing and those around me and that's when you know I really realized being a part of this community was not just being another veteran or just having vet plates on my car or or you know getting going down to the states and getting 15% off a pair of boots like like it's not being a veteran means so much well, hey the Canada does not do that shit do not tell me you can go around and get ugg boots 15% off if you are a veteran cuz you can't but as soon as you cross that border you can get 15% off your ugg boots Stephen. that is a lot of money so i will use that but what i'm saying is yeah but what i'm saying is it's there's something a little more special about it than I think we uh, acknowledge. And uh, I think being the recipient of what I consider a gift from that ride, that that community again, that, that support, that knowing that like uh, not all these people like me, uh, but they'll answer the phone for me. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not about it's not about if you like my personality or you like my attitude or you you know whatever. It's not about that anymore. It becomes you're somebody who's a part of our group who needs help, and I'm going to answer the phone for them because that's what you do. And so, that ride was everything. Okay, loved it. Skip two. Why? <laughs> Such a weird question to ask. Why was an opera singer flown over from Canada with a group to sing at the Wounded Warrior Ride? So, in part, uh, I think like all of our other programs, the, the Battlefield Bike Ride has transitioned over the years. In its inception, and one of its very first uh, iterations, uh, we uh, essentially copied what a group from the UK was doing, and it really was, uh, if you will, in, at that time, a program. It was, let's take some veterans okay. overseas, uh, and at that time, we, 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 our services were primarily for veterans as opposed to the entire first responder community at that time. 
uh, it, it mm -hmm. was a program and it was for the mental health and sort of a not really a, a uh, respite care type thing because certainly uh, you weren't resting that is that is for darn sure but it was a program that you know allowed us to go you know through some of these locations and in part this is why we visited uh, a couple of years ago the Madoc pocket where where we had such a uh, to be very, I guess, uh, uh, political in it, a, a such an interesting time because, frankly, it was shit. And and you know, some of us <laughs> that have been will will tell you as much. Uh, but the you know, and it was a program. It was essentially conceived and organized in such a way that uh, it was for the benefit of the members that were participating in that program. And the Battlefield Bike Ride, frankly, is run and organized by our partnerships uh, director, Steve, uh, mm -hmm. and he takes care of it as it is a fundraising event. And so, uh, as as mm -hmm. and we get questions all the time, like, well, why are you using this this uh, organize or um, this sports organizing uh, uh, company that you're you're paying huge amounts mm -hmm. of dollars to to organize? run and and ensure that the the ride goes properly well the fact is is that in order to have a world-class ride you need you know the appropriate inputs that make it a proper full fundraising event and that's really the the long and the short of it is you know mm -hmm. the the the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the ride as it was organized was organized as a fundraising event and we absolutely recognize there are people that get benefit for it there are participants that go who are in fact service members and they have and there is a therapeutic aspect to going back overseas and seeing some of these things and understanding oh, certainly oh, the military history and and frankly uh, you know having having served uh, not far from Serbia and 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 in the Balkans you know going back to places like that or frankly just visiting those places on the map when I talk to people about where I've been is 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 helpful but the ride itself is conceived as a fundraising event and, and we take appropriate action and spend money where we feel it would be a benefit to attract those high high spending, if you will, or, you know, the yeah. high yes. donors we're looking for. And, and frankly, I, I literally showed up here in the they, office they, to organize <laughs> stuff and the entire office emptied to that, bike, that, that battlefield bike ride. So I yeah. know like, yeah. everyone off they went and I was here organizing and sort of keeping up the fort while they were all away. But really, that's what it is. It's a fundraising yeah. event, and we do. We spend money to make money, and like as yeah. you well know, yeah, of course you have to. A lot of I, 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 I get the whole spend money to make money thing. I, I'm, a, I don't lie about it. My company is a for-profit company. We donate twenty percent. That, and I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say we don't. But I am going to sit here and say like I don't take a damn penny out of the company, and I never have been paid from it, and I won't do that until we're able to donate a minimum of a million dollars. And you know we're halfway there, and then I'll get there when I get there. But it's not, that's not what it is about. That right? It's about, it's about you know being smart with the money that you're given. And I guess the reason I brought it up is because I personally, uh, my table, and I will say, and I can confirm, six to seven other tables struggled with it. And I'll tell you why. Let me tell you why. Let me come in my perspective. I get why. I get why you guys do it. Like uh, from a fundraising perspective, saying this, you know, Grammy or whatever. No, I get that. Totally get it. Because there's a way to get fundraising dollars to you and there's a way to not. And I know how to do it properly, just like you guys do. And that's why you are able to give the, the amazing care that you guys give. Um, 
So we'll never, ever knock that. I will knock the hell out of that opera singer, though. My God. He tried so hard, but I will say it felt super uncomfortable um, for a number of reasons. Just, you know, the some of the songs that were chosen by him were so beyond offensive that I felt bad for Russell. You know, the whole, the circle of life and all of these. And I felt bad for Russell. He brought out, he broke out the, you know, the Phantom of the Opera mask. And I'm like, dude, this is about celebrating the end of the ride with our vets and, 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 and really acknowledging the World War II veteran that was with us. And, um, I said to Russell, I said, did you get your coin given to you yet? And he said, no, they just threw them on the table. And I said, you don't throw coins on the table, my friend. The waiters did, not, not Wounded Warriors, the, the, the waiters that were there at the, at the last stop or whatever. They, they didn't know. They just set them on the table, blah, blah, blah. I said, you don't, you don't do that. You don't do that that way. So I stood up and I said, you do this properly. And I shook his hand. And I gave him his coin. I said, I just want to thank you for being here. I said... He started giggling. He goes, how, how about that singer? <laughs> we all started giggling. I said, he's trying so hard to be kind. And do, he was such a good, do, do such a good job. But I can't stop laughing because it's just not right. This is not right. This is not about him. And he made it about him and all about him. And I felt at the time it was just disrespectful to Russell. But that's, like I said, I'll voice how I feel about it, whether it's you know the common voice or not. I felt at the time... Uh, very uncomfortable. I felt at the time very um, out of place and it was like, it felt inappropriate, but I understand from a fundraising standpoint, I, I get it. Um, I'm hopeful to see that maybe, you know, down the road, him and his uh, group of people that were flown over um, can be a little more respectful to some of our vets. I did have a veteran show up at my um, hotel room and say, hey, can I sleep on the floor here because uh, I was kicked out by um, the opera singer uh, because he doesn't want to sleep with anybody in the house. And so I said, you got it, bro. Come on in. So we made, it, we made up a bed for him. But I'm like, you know, if that were any other vet, I think they would have they lost their mind. But because of the guy it was, he was like, eh, worse stuff has happened to me in my life. I'll move on from it. I was like, cool, you can sleep on the floor. You can sleep on the couch. Or you want to snuggle with Brady and I? Because like, we'll, we'll make room for you. It's a tiny bed, but we'll make room. It's comfy this, and warm. This is the problem so, being you the know, person on the totem pole and not being able yeah, to see yeah. these things. I have no idea about any I know. of these stories. I know. Actually, so. I know. And I know. And and here's the thing is it's not about it's not about blowing people. It's not about saying anything. It's about it's about talking about it so that we can better our community and better our events so that our community never fall through the cracks. And here's what happens is like you can run it up the chain of command, but it might not always make it to you. And I can tell you right now it didn't make it to you. It didn't make it to you. So you know what I mean? And so I want to talk about that stuff because I think that those rides have such a transformative, important, literally no exaggeration, helped me grow in a way I didn't think I was going to be able to grow past, even like in all very, very, very uh, openly about it. I it tell you, if you think the no, ride no. is awesome, you should try trauma resiliency program. Well, I want to. So here's the thing. I want to. It's a time management thing. I'm horrible at time management. I have people who help me with it, and I still can't get my shit together. So this isn't going to be you, the I first conversation. You see the part one of that course or that program uh, almost yeah. a year and a half ago. Yeah. And it took me almost a year and a half to organize my life and organize my time to get on the second part. But yeah. like you want transformative trauma resiliency program will change your life. 
See, well, then I'm going to have to hit you up for that because I think, I think, you know, it's needed. And I think there's a way that we can, as uh, a group of people, have open and honest and truthful conversations, whether they're uncomfortable or not what you hope they would be, or <laughs> you feel a little bit um, apprehensive of having. But I think the, the reason why I ask those questions and I bring up those things isn't to make you feel some kind of way, but it's to, to highlight what I feel like could be potentially something that can be left in the taste, like a, a taste left in someone's mouth that that might not get what the program is for, might have done the ride just to be a support system, or they might not get why X, Y, and Z is offensive or X, Y, and Z affects someone or things like that. And I will say I did, I personally did get up and leave uh, that dinner. I left the dinner and I went to the hotel because I was so upset about it. And um, I'm not even exaggerating. It really did bother me. And so after that, you know, I... I realized, look, this is not what I'm here for. This is what I'm here to, I'm here to ride my bike and I'm here to feel good. And then we went out the next day and we did exactly that. And that's exactly what I went for. And that's all I ever wanted from that. And so, like I said, that, that ride is, it's transformative and I'm excited for the next one. And I'm, I'm excited to participate. I'm excited to push myself and I'm excited to ride with some of the, the, the best people on road bikes. Um, I'm also excited to, to, you know, support wounded warriors in, in that, in that aspect. And I'm, I'm also really happy to have gotten, you know, some of the, some of the answers I wanted, you know, about a few of the things. And I think, I think we don't always ask the hard questions. I think people are afraid to, and I think they're afraid that people will think that they're trying to, there's an agenda. But I think at the end of the day, when your whole mission is just to try to help, I think people will understand where I'm coming from. I mean, nothing but kindness and love. Our questions are great. I think if a lot of our leadership, uh, you know, asked a few more questions, we'd probably be a whole lot better off. Let me tell you, I've got a bunch of corporals that called me and said, sir, listen, you know what? I just got deployed here in Ontario to the long-term care homes, and I feel sick to my stomach every day, and I don't know why. And you know what? That's a great question. I don't know why. Well, you know what? I don't either, because I just happen to be your superior officer. But... There are uh, a number exactly. of member assistance programs that exist for the Canadian Armed Forces. There are a whole bunch of clinicians throughout the country that understand our culture, if not having been part of our culture, because that's the other great thing is that what do you do after the military? Often a lot of people that were somewhat injured, if they're fin- if they're well through their continuum of care, they go off and actually get uh, you know higher education, if you'll call it that, but you know, continuing education, and they become clinicians themselves. So I think you know, well, asking exactly. Those well, exactly. and knowing what questions to ask and knowing how to listen for the right questions uh, certainly is a big part of it. Well, and that's and that's it exactly. It's it's opening up that platform, knowing that you guys are accessible to, to talk to the way you are, and obviously you are. And that was one of my my whole things about having you on is you see this massive corporation or what really is four to six people, but you're portrayed as this massive corporation, which is not a bad thing. I'm saying that's a great thing. But with that comes a massive amount of responsibility, a massive amount of allocation of funds and a massive amount of communication within that. And if the communication isn't being fully, you know, fully brought up the chain of the command or it's not being fully discussed in a way, then, you know, that's where things start to slip through the cracks. And I think, like I said, me bringing things up are only to benefit and better and betterment of, of the programs that you guys have. And I'm grateful for your honesty, your openness and your willingness to have this type of conversation. Um, 
about the charity, but also about the realities of what your programs can offer instead of just, hey, we do this. We do equine therapy. Most people will go, it's horses, but it's not. Right, you know what? And, and, and we're not perfect, and we recognize it. We used no. to no. be very much, I think we, we call it the United Way model because that's what most people are familiar with. We used to raise funds, mm -hmm. go out and do as best as we could to determine what programs existed that deserved funds that would help uniform service and veteran and, and you know people. And we recognized, hey, wait, you know what? This isn't the best way to do things because, you know, how do we properly assess these programs? We can't. We're just, you know, uh, you know, four or four or five people at that time. They were even smaller. And we recognized, hey, you know what? Funding other people's programs is all well and good, but we can't control what's going on there. And what yeah, happens exactly. if harm is done? Well, you know what? We, 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 we made a shift. We brought all our programs in-house. You know, our clinical advisor in, in Tim Black, Dr. Tim Black and uh, Megan McAlperin and, 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 you know, Jaris and Elena, who worked on the kids program for us, Claudine, who, uh, who works on uh, our spousal resiliency program. They're the ones that know. And so bringing that talent, uh, quote unquote, in-house, because we contract them, obviously, but, you know, bringing that talent in-house is... Mm -hmm. really the, the best way to go because then we can be assured that what we're doing is in fact making a difference. Uh, the big thing too is that all of our programs are studied by a university or another. So it's not just, you know, uh, Jane and John went on our program and said, wow, I feel so much better. I can talk to my wife or talk to my husband better or whatever it is. There are studies ongoing at universities that are clinically following how effective our programs really are and if we find that they're not being effective we'll change them do you do you have a particular program that needs more funding that you guys are trying to start or uh or looking to fund more of uh the reason i'm asking is just for our listeners if they're you know wondering what's kind of coming up next and what what is uh what's next for you guys in terms of uh programs is there anything you guys are looking for that you need more of yeah, I would suggest that it's likely the the uh, the couple side of the house. Like uh, there are already generally a fair amount of tools, whether it's within the wellness organization of the services themselves, and you know for for, for all their complexity, if you will, you know the Canadian mm -hmm. Armed Forces mm -hmm. Department of National Defense and and VAC for all their complexity, there is stuff there for for mm -hmm. veterans themselves mm -hmm. and. A lot of the wellness uh, and benefits providers of our, our uniform service personnel uh, cover the, the the member themselves. You know, it's sort of that spousal side of the house or the couple side of the house that that generally I think you know is is the the greatest area of need. Uh, but the part that is I would suggest one of my biggest frustrations is people want to fund service dogs because they're cute, and you know I've got something for I've got a dog beside me. Funding is always required, but I think, you know, having the community at large recognize and understand the complexity of breeding a dog, birthing a litter, assessing the litter, just like forget about even training yet. There's a full assessment on the dog mm -hmm. personality before they even start training and understanding it takes like to get a fully properly trained service dog in absence unfortunately of a national standard for what a service dog is is complex like we have organizations and if you just look at the 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 corollary of seeing eye dogs they are very complex to 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 uh to train as well 
And you can't just snap your fingers and have a fully grown, fully trained dog that's there. Right? there it is a long and involved process. Certainly, the more funds that we can, we can get for that will assist in uh, expanding the number of breeders that are able to fully and properly implement service dogs. I think it's really just an understanding that in the service dog realm, it's not about production. Like we can't, you know, and we do not, our, our service dog partners, we do not hold them to a number of dogs per year. We fund them because what happens and how can you control it? It's, it's a living being. A service dog can be doing exceptionally well for the full 18 months of training it requires to be a fully proper service dog. And one of the dogs might just, you know, fixate on food a little too much to really be of proper service to somebody or they seek a little too much affection and they end up licking you know people a little too much because that's what dogs like to do so 18 months worth of work in effect not are lost but they are lost in the sense of a service dog but you know they could and possibly are often repurposed as perhaps a companion dog or a family pet or mm -hmm. things like that mm -hmm. but a service dog is very complex and any organization that's out there pushing uh you know so many per year is really and i get it because they want to help people and there's a lot of demand out there but pushing i need to produce this many dogs for this year is almost a recipe for disaster because if you're pushing hard to reach a target of dogs how are you going to reach that target well we can just decrease a little bit of our standard at this point and you can't because it is a service dog. They are performing a task. And it's not just I am there yes. to help. I, I look at my dog and I feel calm. That's not a service dog. They have a work. They are a working breed. They are performing specific tasks for their paired human. And it's just a matter of making sure the community understands that. Unfortunately, it takes time. And out of an entire litter, it is possible that not a single dog gets produced for any number of reasons. Do you do you find that when people are bringing up the dog programs to you, do you find that they have this unrealistic, unrealistic expectation um, about what a service dog is, what a service dog can do, and what a true service dog is actually oh, for? Yeah. So I, have I, don't you know, not I don't know that? if we call it an unrealistic expectation, but absolutely. I think there is a lack of understanding of the differentiation between what some people call a facility dog or a companion dog or, uh, you know, uh, like even in, in the same way, an autism dog has a very specific mm -hmm. task to perform for that autistic person. And what are the symptoms and how do we suffer from PTSD? Well, frankly, I could spend the next hour talking about the various things that happen when one suffers from an operational yeah. stress injury. So if in my case, for example, uh, theoretically, I have night terrors. I need a service dog that will recognize when I'm just like, will recognize the difference between a nightmare because I'm having a bad dream and when I'm experiencing a night terror to wake me up and, and bring me back to reality is a very specific, very complex skill to teach a dog. You might end up with a litter mm -hmm. of, of whatever it happens to be eight that go through the entire set of training and they show aptitude in physical uh, distancing of uh, a, a from a anxiety-inducing situation. But 
-hmm. There may not be in that litter a dog that has the aptitude or ability to recognize properly a night terror. So uh, there's a human waiting for somebody to help them, some dog to help them with a night terror. And perhaps two full litters go through and that particular skill can't be found in those dogs. So it is very complex. So what do you do? Is, are the dogs bad? Of course not. It's just that no. in the same no. way, I'm not going to use a sling and a cast on my arm if I have a broken ankle. It's the right tool, <laughs> the right dog, and, and it's complex. And, and we recognize that service yeah. dogs provide a service and are a tool. I don't still, and I did, I had a really awesome broken thumb and broken up, broken arm. I don't continue to walk around with a cast because am I cured? Mm -hmm. Of course mm -hmm. not. I will always have had a broken arm and a broken thumb. But are they healed? Absolutely. I can play mm -hmm. PlayStation mm -hmm. 4 with my son fairly well. I can still go out and do a rock march and shoot my rifle because I've been healed, but I've not been mm -hmm. cured. In mm -hmm. the same way, a dog exactly. is exactly. A, a health tool. And eventually, we all presume that at some point, you will heal from your injuries. You're not cured, of course, but you heal from your injuries, and you don't need that tool anymore. So that, that's our hope. But yes, absolutely, there is. And I think, absolutely, a lot of people say service dog. And perhaps, I don't know what the percentage would be, but a lot of them actually are just looking for a companion dog, or even just a companion that, you know, when they feel a little bit off, they know there's somebody there in their life. And you know what? That is absolutely important. I will tell you, there is nothing better than when I get home and I'm a seeing eye human, actually, because my dog, unfortunately, is blind and I get to give it directions. Oh, oh. For a walk. But there is nothing better than when I come home and she is over the moon to see me. And in that way, yes, you know, my stress levels just go almost to zero when I get home because she's there. But, well, yeah. she is so far from being a service dog. My kids and their food the plates that get stolen, you know, can certainly tell you <laughs> that she doesn't have the concentration to, to do actual work. So what you're saying, so what you're is, saying is she needs a seeing eye dog? dog? Uh, well, no, she's got a seeing eye human. It's awesome. I, I mean, I mean yeah, well, yeah, I guess you can totally be a human. A gauche, no, no, arrête, viens Oh, oh, she speaks French, French too. too. Uh, my my dog is a francophone, as am I. Oh, my, I know you are. I can hear it in your accent. I I've, I heard that the second I I you said a word, I could tell right away after being posted to Quebec. I learned real quick when somebody could actually speak French and when somebody just said they could speak French. Um, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, having a dog, I know, I I love. I know their effects on people. I love hearing that so much that they're that they are that way for you. I mean, we have Kenny. He's not a service dog, but he's our rescue dog. He's our shop dog. He's in our offices every single day. Yeah, he's a four-year-old King Corso. He's a beast of a dog, and he is. I'm not sure what that a, is. Yeah. yeah. A cane corso. They're police dogs from Europe. They're oh. ginormous. They're about 110 pounds. Yeah, but he's uh, he's he's more of a a tiny little teddy bear. He'll just cuddle you. And I, you know, I was told I could get a service dog and, you know, all of this. And I said, well, no, I don't want to take a service dog when I know somebody else who can't even leave their home without it wouldn't need it more than I will. So when uh, the, the president of my company approached me about bringing a dog in, I was over the moon just at the idea of having, number one, an animal in the office 
that will know and watch the front door so I don't have to watch it because you feel that sense of paranoia even when if you know somebody's not watching the door you know people could just walk in so for me that was a really hard transition to being in this building and so Kenny helped that significantly and then I had a panic attack one day actually and it was probably no more than two months after we had Kenny come in for the first time and I was in the kitchen and we were talking about something and all of a sudden my chest just went like a brick was on it and I could not breathe and I I looked at the girls and I just slid down the wall like I would have been shot I just went all the way down and I just sat there and I couldn't I couldn't for the life of me and Tally's like are you okay I'm like I can't get air and all of a sudden I just see Kenny come in he turns around he looks at me turns around points his butt at me backs himself up and just sits down on top of me all the way on me and I was what the hell and but within seconds seconds actual seconds I felt my chest loosen and I felt air start to go through my lungs again and I felt like I wasn't gonna have a heart attack or stop breathing and he just looked at me and just licked my face and I was like god damn it I get it now oh my god I've always gotten it but like I've never had an episode where I've been in the situation with that dog or a dog to be there for me like that yeah, wow and we're, we're part of their pack and they're part of ours right that that's and that's you know people they don't are realize that fantastic to keep us in the here and now you know practicing a better or or any other grounding technique is great but when you have a four-legged mm-hmm. you know living thing saying hey come back to the here and now because i'm looking your face and i need your attention it's tremendous yeah you know i was uh i i wish now that i would have gotten i mean this is not discounting how much i love my cat so let's just put that out there to the cat people but i wish i would have gotten a dog because when i got home after my injury they just they sent me back to my regiment for a day and then we're like you're going to the hospital and that was how i got how i left my unit and it was pretty rough on me, I will say. Um, Oh, oh no, I got sent home through, ready? I got sent home through Dubai, England, uh, Ontario, to Quebec, landed in Vacatze with 2 a.m. in the morning by myself, had to find my way back with one pair of kit. But I also was drugged out of my skull while flying through all of these countries and somehow not sure how I didn't attack somebody in the Dubai airport because you know what Dubai airport looks like. Oh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, didn't get, didn't get to go to Cyprus to do decompression. Didn't, uh, didn't do any of that. Went right to the hospital on a cornucopia of drugs that I literally could not walk, talk, function. It was, it was horrendous. Anyway, so I get to the unit. Nobody's there. Housing is being rebuilt. So I go sit at the regiment. They go, RSM wants to see you in French because I was in a French unit. I did not speak French. Let's even start with that conversation. (laughs) I got posted off of, um, what's it called? Uh, Parade, graduating from my artillery training. You, you, and you, you're going to Vacatier. And I said, I don't speak French. So they're like, you're going to learn. And I'm like, cool. So then I got there and didn't speak French and my staff didn't speak English. And the men were not stoked to see a five foot, 110 pound gunner. That was going to be one of their people because they didn't think I could do the job. So they were right off the bat. They felt shorted. So we got there all good. And then uh, RSM says, yeah, here's your letter. Bye. You're going to... uh, you're going to be uh, leaving and you're going to be going to the hospital in Ottawa. Nice knowing you. 
And uh, my unit had still been in Afghanistan. They were there. Two, they had, I think, it was two or three weeks more before they were coming back. Um, and uh, I was like, okay, well, what about all my stuff? They're like, yeah, we'll send it to you. I'm like, okay, cool. So then I went uh, to Ottawa and um, moved in with a roommate and uh, threatened to throw her off a balcony. So that didn't last. And then I got put in the military housing and then got sent to the hospital and uh, didn't hear from anybody for six months. Wow. Shit was tight, Steven. That's a, in, it's in, fucking in, in awesome. It's inconceivable, you know? It's just... It is inconceivable. <laughs> to, be, to be frank, you know, I think, you know, in, in part... Uh, a lot of the leadership is not quite set up to fail, but we don't have these conversations. No. And, you know, part of part of what we we're don't. trying to do with our uh, services, certainly our, our uniform service uh, organizations, we, we offer the trauma-informed leadership program. It is, you know, specifically yeah. for the leadership to understand what's going on, how things happen, and to talk about, although personally I really don't like the term, I think sanctuary trauma uh, and that term really... It, misappropriates or, or 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 doesn't really describe what's happening very well but the the concept of sanctuary trauma where it's you know the leadership is in fact uh, perhaps not the primary injury but you know contributing to the the whole traumatic event a massive and so having things like yeah. trauma-informed leadership having uh, the wounded warriors canada uh, uh trauma resiliency training for the wellness groups or before operational stress for the the front line is very important so that people understand how these things happen downstream. So when you run into a situation, mm -hmm. apart from R2MR, which is very good at, at that sort of, here's where I am on the spectrum and, and sort of a great introduction, it takes that next level of, oh, right, so now you have somebody injured, you know, a comment of, we'll talk tomorrow and you never talk is yeah. you know, yeah. wholly and completely inappropriate. You know, being, being mm -hmm. and having that earnest and honest We'll talk and making the time to talk, whether it's oh. helpful or not, frankly, is irrelevant. The leadership carving time out to actually talk is is tremendous. Um, but like I said, Stephen, it was important for me to, you know, have this conversation. Um, like you said, our staff members, our unit people who are still serving aren't necessarily always given the tools uh, how to handle someone or handle a situation. So I will say, you know, that is, is something I'll give them. Um, I think it's about time to have those conversations, though, and I think uh, more and more people are having them. And I'm really happy to see that, and I'd like to think that this conversation will help as well um, in, in educating people on the programs you guys have, but also educating uh, people on uh, what's really going on uh, with our veterans. And the fact of the matter is, is everybody is always evolving and trying to change their programs to better the community. Um, but we can't do any of that without people's feedback, whether it be negative or positive we prefer to have feedback because you can't change anything if you don't tell us the problems. And you don't know, you can't fix what you don't know. Absolutely, I agree. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think that's, you know, one of the things uh, that's important about having you on um, is just opening those doors and letting people know that they can contact you guys if they have those types of questions and, you know, knowing that they can contact us 
if they can't find the resources anywhere else, we try to do our best to find them and point them in the right direction. And I will say from this podcast alone, I've learned about a couple of programs that I'm personally very excited about, but also very excited for others about um, just because it's about damn time somebody did some of these programs. And it's about uh, time that we not only, you know, hold ourselves accountable for what what's going on with us, but also hold ourselves accountable in the sense that we we affect those around us. We affect how people feel around us and how we make people feel when we're struggling. Um, and it's okay to tell somebody they're being shitty, but it's also okay to tell them you're being shitty, but here's a way to fix it. I'm more than willing to help you do it. You know what I mean? So there's, there's, a, there's a way to do it. And I think having that conversation openly more and more and being willing to have those open conversations, uh, I think will be nothing but uh, a positive for our veteran community uh, moving forward and for our first responders as well. So um, being, like you said, conscious of time, uh, I'm going to book you again. I want to know about your service, Stephen. I want to chat with another fellow francophone. I'm considering myself an honorary one considering I got stuck in that unit um, and uh, I'd love to I'd love to chat more about you know just your service and what you've you've done um, for our country so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna let you go I'm gonna say a massive thank you um, I I know I know you were apprehensive at first I could see it in your face um, I'm very grateful that you were able to answer the questions I had and um, I hope that I asked them respectfully enough and not with a uh, uh, combative, combative tone, as many of my sergeants used to say. So I'm, uh, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for your time, um, for the work that you guys are doing. Um, I'm hopeful to never see an opera singer again, but that's me. And I'm, I'm hopeful that on this next bike ride, uh, I see your face out there too, because I mean, Oh, you know, it would be interesting, but frankly, I'll be too busy actually scheduling venues, scheduling participants, and making sure the catering is is uh, properly organized so that people are on our programs. I, I love it so much. I'm still going to hold you to it, though. I'm still, right. still going to hold you to it. I think you need to get your butt out there. And, uh, Stephen, is there anything you would like to say? Uh, otherwise, any places anybody can reach out to you guys if they need anything or find resources on your site? Well, yeah, absolutely. So I think in part, you know, you were touching on accountability. And, and you know, we, we hold that to heart here because, you know, we are held accountable by those who came before. And we are held accountable by those that are still here and need our help. And that's why we do honor the fallen and help the living. And frankly, if you want to give me a call, uh, the 800 number is 888-706-4808. And somebody's going to have to fact check that for me because I don't really recall. But I am extension 6. And that 800 number comes to my mobile phone. And unless it is midnight here in Ontario and before 6 a.m., Otherwise, I'll answer it if I'm not on the phone with somebody else right now. And so, uh, you know, it's it's like the website's there, woundedwarriors.ca. Uh, you know, we're there. We're here to talk. And I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has about programs. I love that, Stephen. Thank you so much. And uh, I do hope that next time we chat, your eyebrows just danced as incredibly as they did while you were trying to figure out that phone number. That was fantastic. So thank you so much, Stephen from Wounded Warriors Canada, everyone. Thank you for coming on the Brass and Unity podcast. And we will be chatting with you all on the next episode. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. Bye-bye.
So at the end of this episode of the Brass and Unity podcast, this week we're going to feature Wounded Warriors Canada as our charity of the week. It is a national mental health service provider for veterans and first responders and their families, but that's really a simplification of what it does. They have programs for husbands and wives, equine therapy. They have bike tours that help veterans with PTSD. They do some incredible work. So please take some time and go check out Wounded Warriors canada.ca and see what kind of help uh, if you need any at all they can help to provide you with and we will see you all next week